Hey, everybody. Our guest today is going to talk all about conservative talk radio. Yes, conservative talk radio. Now, some of you guys might not know a lot about it. Some of you guys might listen to it every single day. We got a real mixed audience here on this podcast, but I will assure you that there will be a tremendous amount of discussion about Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, uh, uh, look, I found it fascinating. I think you guys are going to really, 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 really dig it. But before we get into it, let's remind you that there's one place where you can support this show, and that is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, that's where you can sign up for a $3 club. That gets you a bonus podcast on Monday, a bonus podcast on Friday. And I'm doing these no matter where I am. Uh, I did Mondays in Austin. I'm going to do Fridays in Atlanta because it matters that you guys get all these fresh takes. All right. Enough of talking about how we support the show. What do you say we just go ahead and get in to our interview, friends? My guest today is Brian Rosenwald. His new book is Talk Radio's America, and he is the co-creator and editor of the blog Made by History and a scholar in residence at the University of Pennsylvania. And we are going to get all into one of my favorite subjects, conservative talk radio. Brian, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be with you. Uh, All right. So I've always felt that conservative talk radio is something of a, 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 a phantom sort of power in our political universe, because some people, it is very important to others. It is something that only exists, I guess, in our modern era, uh, in clips on Twitter, if that, right? Maybe a few uh, things that get pulled out for other television shows. But from your perspective, let's start from the beginning. Where does talk radio come from and how does it come to prominence in our American media landscape? Well, talk radio is very real, that, that much I'll say. Um, and it comes from a unique set of circumstances in the 1970s and 80s, uh, especially the 80s. AM radio is losing listeners left and right because music sounds better on FM. FM has the path-breaking uh, rock stations on it, and the music just sounds better. If you ever flip from the AM to the FM dial, even if you're listening to a ball game, you're like, yeah. my God, the FM is so much clearer. And so listeners are flocking to FM, and with them is going the advertising dollars. So AM has a major commercial problem. They need new content. And a lot of uh, radio executives start to hit on the fact that, you know, the human voice doesn't sound terrible on AM, and that talk programming may not save their stations, but it's the best shot. Like, it, it might fail, but they might as well take the shot because if they stick with music, they're definitely dead. And so you have that, and that, that's factor one. And then along comes the guy who makes conservative talk radio. And, of course, I'm talking about Rush Limbaugh. And he has been a DJ in the 1970s. Uh, I think gets fired like four times as a DJ um, using even different names uh, like Jeff Christie. And he takes the shtick that he had done as a DJ, uh, talking about broadcasting excellence and, and that kind of thing, um, and, and he applies it to the conservative values that he got at the dinner table growing up from his father and politics in a long-form talk show. And it's zany, 
and it's off the wall. He starts, a, a, you know, he gets his break at KFBK in Sacramento between 1984 and 1988. Um, and in 1988, the summer of 88, he goes to New York and he starts um, doing a New York show in July. And on August 1st, 1988, he does a nationally syndicated show. And for a lot of America, they were hearing something they had never heard before. They, in so much as you had talk radio at that point, it was almost entirely local because that the rule in the business, everyone thought that to succeed, you had to mostly be local unless it was overnight. And Limbaugh is not only talking nationally, but he's talking, he's opinionated. Yeah. The, the paradigmatic host at that point was someone like Larry King, who would do interviews. He did, you know, newsmakers, it didn't matter if they were. Uh, you know, presidents or congressmen or, you know, starlets uh, from Hollywood. He was interviewing anybody and they might switch, you know, in the middle of the night to, to a caller who wanted to talk about abominable snowmen, but it was interesting radio. And he leaned left, as did a lot of hosts in that era, but they didn't talk about the perspectives. One guy who actually leaned right uh, was a guy named Barry Farber, who was a star in New York. And when Limbaugh goes national, he sort of said to himself, well, Barry, wh why didn't I think of that? You yeah. know, what, what are you doing here? He said, never would have occurred to me to uh, criticize the president of the United States. And Limbaugh is doing it, – it's zany. It's fun. It's hard to tell when you listen today. But he was to conservative uh, sort of satire or politics – conversation, what John Stewart was to, to liberal political comedy in the 2000s. He was doing skits and parodies and nicknames. You know, Alan Cranston, who was a senator in California um, in those days, who he had sort of been ragging on since his days in Sacramento, was known as the cadaver because of the way he looked. Yeah. Um, and, and he talked about gorbasms. Uh, instead of sort of ragging on Democrats or uh, – you know, going after the media to quite the extent he does today, Gorbazms sort of signaled that that's how the left and the media responded when somebody talked about Mikhail Gorbachev. And they had their own intro music. It was the Imperial March from Star Wars, you know, Darth Vader's yeah. music. And so it's the, the sense of like, look at them Gorbazming for this guy who is implicitly saying they're, e you know, he's evil because, you know, that, that's Darth Vader. And he did updates on everything from condoms. The condom update song was Up, Up, and Away by The Fifth Dimension, which has a lyric like Up, Up, and Away, My Beautiful Balloon or something like that. <laughs> uh, he did Andy Williams' Born Free was overlaid with mortar uh, sounds and explosions and shotguns and squawking animals. That led into a wilderness update. He did it all. He, did, he aborted callers. He would play a vacuum cleaner sound effect and kind of screaming as he hung up on a caller. Yeah. And that didn't last very long because advertisers <laughs> were not wild about that. Sure. But he was making the point as far as he was concerned that that was controversial, whereas actual legal abortion was not. And he was saying, well, isn't this a screwed up priority? But he was doing it in a way that people had never heard that was fun and funny. And, you know, it, it takes off like wildfire by the early 90s. You know, by year three or four, there are rush rooms in restaurants where people are going to have lunch and listen to Rush's show. And he reveals not only that, that talk, nationally syndicated talk, and talk can really succeed, but he also reveals an audience that I don't think he or any of his, you know, the, the executives involved really were looking for. You know, Rush is a classic entertainer at that point. He you know, tells an early interviewer that, that people listen to the radio for three things, entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. 
that that's, you know, what that's he's it. doing. Yeah. And people are calling in and saying, thank God you're on the air, Rush. We finally have a voice. There's finally someone to stick up for us. And that those kinds of calls were what were sort of shorthanded into dittos and mega dittos yeah. um, over time because nobody likes hearing you know, some fawning caller every five minutes. It's not good radio. But the fact is that sort of the light bulb goes off for a lot of radio executives who say, well, it's his conservatism. It's not that he's a superlative entertainer. And they see it as his conservatism, and they start hiring a bunch of conservative hosts, many of whom have nowhere near the talent of Limbaugh. And slowly over time, that leads to all conservative stations. The first one is KVI in Seattle. It's branded that way. Um well, that, that's actually, try. hold on, yeah, because I do I do want to ask about this, because sports talk radio famously has a history that begins with WFAN in New York, right? That When, when you yep. trace back the history of that entire lineage, something that now every major market has at least one sports talk radio station, it is that. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, is it for conservative radio, the first station that broadcasts Limbaugh or his flagship station, or does it come after that in Seattle? Well, it actually comes after that. Um, you know, the, the origins of talk radio, it, it really goes back to KABC in, the 19, in 1960 um, when they need something new. And they do, but what they're doing is they might have a sunny morning show, which is like the, um, the equivalent of like the Today Show on the sure. radio. And they've got uh, a sports show at night. They have a little of everything and every political perspective on there. So what, what happens with Limbaugh is – In 1987, the FCC does away with a regulation known as the Fairness Doctrine, and it's very often misunderstood because there were two pieces of it. One piece was if you have a candidate on, you've got to give his opponent equal time. The second piece was something that required overall balance in a station's programming if they're going to deal with controversial issues. And so this meant that when Limbaugh's on KFBK in Sacramento, they also had a liberal host. So that goes away, which enables the all-conservative station. And what happens is KBI in Seattle, um, one day one of Limbaugh's, the executives at the company syndicating Limbaugh, is meeting with the program director and the station general manager there. They're, they're smoking Russia's cigars um, and having a good time. And, and this guy from the, the company says to them, you know, why do you have these liberals on? Nobody wants to hear that. And they start investigating. They dig in. They, they talk to callers. They are listening to their airwaves. They're looking at ratings. And they say, you know what? Let, let's fire this guy. Let's try another conservative. Let's see what happens. And within like two years, they go from like 23rd in the market to first. Um, and that is a sort of a signal that, hey, there's something to this all conservative thing. And then the, the next chapter, ironically enough, is in San Francisco, another really liberal city. Yeah. There is a top-rated um, – Station. They, they would be number one in the market for 30 years, called, and, and the call letters are KGO. And it was much more like that KABC model. They've got a little of everything. They're a news station that has multiple perspectives, um, but there's a, a station that had been run down in the city that is for sale. And the, the general manager of KGO goes to his um, corporate bosses. At, at the time, ABC and Capital Cities own the station, and he says – you know, can we buy this other station? Because I'm worried that someone could buy it up and program a competitor against us. Yeah. So we want to protect our, our top-rated station. So his bosses buy this station, and that leaves one problem. They need to put something on it. 
And after trying a couple of things, he calls up his old program director who's up in Seattle working at a, a different station. And he says, you know, that this thing that's going off there with KVI, w- would it work in San Francisco? And his old program director, who was a card-carrying liberal Democrat, says to him, yeah, it would. Because <laughs> the one thing you can't be in San Francisco openly is a conservative. Yeah. If you're a conservative, you're marginalized, you're maligned. And they want what becomes sort of a digital – uh, neighborhood bar for a conservative neighborhood. And these stations are successful because you only need three to 5% of the market in a big city market to be successful. And when that station succeeds, it's, it's KSFO and they do well because it's an ABC cap city station. All of the other ABC cap cities, you know, program directors are saying, well, look at that. And they start trying it. And gradually over the course of the 1990s, really in the early 2000s, you start to get all conservative stations. And there is another factor in terms of rising syndication and things like that. But by you know, 2002, 2003, you're getting a lot of conservative syndicated shows. And that enables the stations we have today, which is you, know, you might have a local conservative morning show. Then you might have, if it's owned by iHeartMedia, the, the old Clear Channel, they changed yeah. their name, you might get they're going to want to put syndicated shows on that Premier Radio, their syndication arm, produces. So they might get Glenn Beck at 9, Rush at noon, Sean Hannity at 3, um, and then there's a panoply of, of choices at, at night. They either take someone from earlier in the day and tape delay them, or they've got Lars Larson, or they've got Mark Levin, and then they might put somebody else, you know, pluck them at the 9 to 12 hour, even though the show was broadcast earlier in the day. And then usually they have uh, the shows coast to coast overnight, which is sort of paranormal talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's this all day talk of nationally syndicated politics, you know, for like 12 hours. And that would have been impossible in the mid 80s. And this is sort of that that's the, the short version of the story. I know it probably didn't seem short to everyone <laughs> listening, but it, it's that's the short version of how this happens. Yeah, but it wasn't like one decision maker made this this move. It wasn't like, hey, Rush is you create this flagship station that's so great, like WFAN. It was more about a gradual transformation process as radio executives come to think that the best, most economical way to make the most money is with all conservative predominantly syndicated national political talk because the people listening to it stay tuned forever. They, yeah. they like don't turn it off. They have the longest TSL, what's known as TSL, time spent listening, of like any format. And because the listeners hang on all day, it, it creates high advertising rates, and they they can make a lot of money. And because it's mostly syndicated programming, it's pretty cheap to put together. So it, it has all these economic advantages. There's no political motive for any company outside of Salem. Salem is a company that actually does have sort of values that they're trying to inculcate. Yeah. And their stations are all conservative talk or Christian talk. But, but other uh, otherwise, that, otherwise these are all about one thing, the yeah. almighty dollar money. So what's fascinating is that I would have thought that this was something that kind of was birthed out of the heartland or the South where obviously a lot of these conservative stations do really, really well, or maybe even Texas, but this revolution is is kind of born in Pacific Northwestern cities that are known for their liberal attitudes because this was the secret society people could be uh, a part of. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that is true in terms of all conservative stations. I think that it would be a mistake not to to mention that, you know, Rush starts out, and and this tells you how insignificant it is when Rush starts. We don't know how many stations he was on day one on August 1st, 1988. It was somewhere between 58 and and, uh, 57 and 87. Yeah. Um, But every time he tells the story, the number is slightly different. You know, it's every couple of years. And all the the contemporary materials are kind of – blurry because it was dependent. People were counting based on who, how many stations the guy before him had on, who was using the satellite time. It's, it's all very murky, but a lot of those were small stations in places. I think it's KCNN in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota, maybe it's somewhere <laughs> in North Dakota. That was like the 18th station that picks rush up. He struggles at first to get into major markets. And even when he does, he is often, it takes a couple of years to really take off. Um, something that, that no one would be afforded the luxury of today, like that that much time. But yeah. in a lot of cases, in some of these big markets, they were adamant that local was the only way to be successful. That you know, the syndicated stuff, even as start as Rush takes off, they say, Oh, it might work in North Dakota, but it's not working in Philadelphia or New York. People want to hear about Philadelphia or New York. They want to host who, yeah, he can talk national politics, but he can also talk about why the, the city can't get the snow off the ground, you know, five yeah. days after the blizzard. And in a lot of cases, they add Rush sort of only as a defensive maneuver. It, they're worried that if they don't add him, somebody else is going to build a competitor station um, with him. Rush yeah. as the anchor piece. And so they, they add him. They take like an hour from three different hosts and plug him in the middle of the day. Um, and, and very quickly in kind of the early 90s, they go from you know Rush's people and, and his management having to kind of beg and barter and, and wheedle with people and say, look – you know, the, you got to give this guy a shot. And, and they're on like the second, you know, they're on a pretty weak, like signaled station to by the early nineties, the top signaled stations are kind of coming to them and saying, we want rush, you know, how, how can we get him? What, what do we have to give you? And it goes from what they call the barter method, which is essentially, we give you the show. We, the syndicator, give you the station, the show in exchange for commercial time during the, the show, you get a certain number of commercial slots to sell to with rush it's the barter method plus a cash fee, plus you have to play this update he does in the morning, and that update comes with its own commercial. So all of a sudden, Rush can dictate the terms. He's yeah. that important, uh, and that's a big shift very quickly. But, yeah, you know, it's not really birthed out of the heartland. Yes, he taps into something in the heartland. Yes, in the heartland, it, it is big. But in terms of all conservative stations, it's, it's, I always like to tell that story because not only is it ironic, not only is it surprising to people, but it's the real signal to people if it can succeed in San Francisco and it can succeed in Seattle, that it can work anywhere because those are not conservative places. Yeah. Uh, so what is Russia's relationship with the industry that kind of blooms below him? Because he, he is obviously somebody that is a, a very important figure on the rights media landscape, but you don't necessarily see him palling around or doing live events with other uh, big conservative media stars that have kind of come after him. He's always seemed, at least by my observation, to have a bit of an arm's length uh, a relationship with anybody else. It, it, would that be correct? Well, I think we have to understand where he is in the media ecosystem. In his early days, he's actually on the road every weekend doing what is essentially a stand-up show um, for affiliates. He goes places like Hickory, North Carolina to do this show, you know, tiny markets 
where he's on the road like 50 weekends a year and he's doing things like he, he takes a condom and puts it over the microphone of it during this stage show and says it's going to be safe talk to, and the condom's going to protect people from any of the harmful words he might enunciate. Yeah. Um, and he, he's doing this every weekend, you know, selling merchandise. Uh, so these are, the, these are, these are live show. events or, or remote no. broadcasts or. The, no, these are live events. This is a stage show. You know, they're hyping it all week on the radio. Rush is coming to town. Gotcha. Rush is going to do his show. It was called the Rush to Excellence Tour. And he put the tuxedo on, and he had one of those updates I was talking about was a homeless update where he's got the theme song is uh, Clarence Frogman Henry Ain't Got No Home. And they brought Frogman Henry in for some of these shows. So it's like a, almost like a stand-up routine that he's doing on the weekends. It, um, like 50 weekends a year at the beginning. And he's doing any interviews that anybody wants. You, know, you, you can find New York Times interviews, U.S. News. He's doing all that. And as he gets bigger, he doesn't need to do any of this. Yeah. And so today, all he does, the only media he does is Fox News. He'll do Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. He'll come home with Sean Hannity, who's a friend of his. Uh, you know, he is friendly with a lot of these folks off the air, yeah. whether it's Hannity, whether it's Mark Levin, because a lot of them got their start either as vacation fill-ins for him or as experts that he would bring on. Occasionally, Levin was, was one of his legal experts. Um, and so he, he does, he's friendly with these people. He talks him off the air, but like, he doesn't need to do a lot of appearances anymore. He doesn't have yeah. to cultivate his local markets because he's rushed because he's that big. And he, he's known as what they call in the business a ratings tentpole. What, what does that mean? It means that because Rush is so big and people tune in to hear him, they'll often turn the radio on an hour before Rush is on, or they'll keep it on after he's off. They might even walk out of the room and leave it on. And so he's catalyzing ratings for shows. Um, he's doing something where he's getting uh, other shows are taking off um, because Rush is giving them audience. Rush is giving them market share. Rush is helping them out. Um, and so he has a unique role in that sense. And everybody else in the business kind of reveres Rush. They, uh, they see Rush as a um, huge uh, kind of figure. They see him as the guy who is, um, you know, he, he's the, the, the guy who made this for them. And so they see Rush in, in a very positive light. They, you know, left, right, and center, they'll tell you this is the guy, the enormous talent. He made this whole business. He saved AM radio. So it's not that, he, that they don't respect him. And, and, in fact, he drives a lot of the conversation on other shows. Yeah. He, you know, if you listen to what Rush says, um, you will get you, – you'll see sort of the, the agenda that not just, you know, radio but cable news will talk about the rest of the day. I learned this as much as anybody else. Because uh, I guess it's now two or three weeks ago, Rush starts talking about me. Um, I did a CNN appearance, and Rush, somebody must have shown Rush the segment. He sees it. He starts talking about me. He says, you know, this guy gets it. He's better than anybody else at understanding who's ever tried to write about this, at understanding talk radio and what I'm trying to do with this show. Well, within 24 hours, I got four or five radio shows <laughs> to ask me to come on. Yeah. Why? Because Rush talked about it. That was the, the catalyst. They're paying attention to Rush because so much of their audience is paying attention to Rush. They need to know what he's talking about. Um, and it, it's a very, uh, you know, he, he is that significant. So, yeah, I think he is a little bit aloof in that he's set off by himself. Yeah. Uh, he broadcasts somewhere at a Palm Beach. You know, he's not 
based his station anywhere or anything like that. But he, some of that is just that he's so big now that he's able to do that um, in a way that other guys are not. When we talk about what his listenership is now, like what is uh, uh, his, his current listenership and how does it relate to uh, a, a possible peak earlier or is he at his peak now? It's really hard to say because the number one rule about radio audience size is that nobody tells you the truth about them um, <laughs> because they're all inflating. It's just like, look, you want to tell people as many people possible uh, listen to your podcast. So you come up with some number that, that is maybe misleading, but you say, you know, the, the, you know, we get this many listeners for, you know, in at least one minute or something like yeah. that. Well, they do that kind of stuff. And I mean, the estimates have been like 16 to 18 million per week, like his weekly cumulative audience, they call it a cum, but uh, he not too long ago during the Trump presidency, it might've been 18, I think 2018 at this point, he sort of says, no, we're doing better than we've ever done. Our audience is like double that. So I, I don't know that anyone other than Rush and his people and the folks at Nielsen, uh, or I'm sorry, Arbitron Nielsen's TV, yeah. Arbitron is radio, um, actually know what his audience is, but it's in the tens of millions. Um, it's safe to say the biggest host, biggest three or four hosts, are in the tens of millions a week and they have enormous impact. You know, your top local hosts, some of them can crest a million a week in big markets, but they're usually in the hundreds of thousands. But the, those big national guys like Rush, you know, it wouldn't shock me if at this point Rush is, is about 20 million um, or something thereabouts, you know, give or take a couple of million where, you know, and, and I think he's trending back up towards his peak. He was definitely there in the early to mid 90s. Uh, 18, 20 million, somewhere in there. And then it kind of dips in the early 2000s. There's more competition and things. But in the Trump era, where the, the president is always extolling the virtues of conservative media, yeah. and the president's playing golf with Rush, and, and this stuff is also visible, and politics is so fraught, and, and the, the sides are sort of like warring with each other, it's definitely gone back up for, for the whole business. You know, um, Conflict and bad things and, and big news are great for talk radio. It, the the worst thing for them is kind of a boring day or a boring week when yeah. there's nothing going on. So I, I think he, you know his his audience is is back heading back towards its peak if it's not at its peak. That's crazy. I mean, because if you think about him in the way that we categorize uh, or people from more mainstream media outlets would categorize his career, you would think that it'd probably be like the, the Newt Gingrich era of the early nineties as he's a bit more of a novelty. And like you explained, uh, this is all a burgeoning medium and, and everything is being found or maybe, you know, uh, through the, the Lewinsky stuff in the late nineties. But it, it's crazy to think that he is still at, at his, his, top now as radio itself kind of falls apart around him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and what's interesting is when I started this research, even halfway through the answer to you would have been, yeah, he's way down from his peak. That yeah. rush is kind of winning, that, that everybody's winning. You know, he's still number one, but he's not, he, he doesn't reach the same audience that he once did size wise. It seems like that has kind of reversed itself in the last two or three years and Donald Trump is probably the main catalyst for that and how fraught our politics are. But, you know, he's always been number one in the business now, 30 years. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing streak. That's why I say to people, look, you can hate Rush, you can hate his politics, you can say he's doing a lot of bad things for society, but you should acknowledge how 
singular his talent was, how he reshaped this whole medium, and how big he's been for how long. Because, you know, John, what did John Stewart do? 12 years of The Daily Show before he yeah. says, you know, I, I've done it, or 13 years, something like that, where he says, you know, th- this is enough for me. Um, you know, it certainly was like half of Russia's um, reign, if not less. And he says, you know, I, I think it's time for me to try something else. I'm burned out with this. And Rush just keeps going, partly because he loves radio. This is a guy who is DJing or doing radio going back to his high school days. He absolutely adores the medium. He, you know, he wanted to be in radio his whole life. And the, the irony for him was that his parents kind of viewed it as a failure. And he comes from a family of lawyers um, for a long time. And you know, he tells a story at one point right before his father passes away. I think he might have been on Nightline. I think that that was the trigger. And his parents are watching, and his father says to his mother, you know, where did he get those ideas? And she says, from you, silly. You know, and and it's sort of the moment where his parents are are very proud of him. Um, And, and in fact, there's another moment in in 2009, and this is a great way to talk about his political importance. 2009, there is a moment where he doesn't tell the audience, he forgets to tell the audience that he's going to be absent the next day. Yeah. Um, and he tells his guest host to kind of play with them a little bit, hint at, you know, he's doing something big and important. And where he is, is he's at the White House. This is January of 09, President Bush in the office. Um, and he's at the White House. And- oh, man. Looks like we might have lost you. Brian, are you there? Brian, if you can hear me, I cannot hear you. Oh, I know what's going on. Can you hear me now? Yes. I'm sorry about that. I'm trying to shut the call waiting off, and I hit the mute. Oh. I'm thinking it would mute the call, but it was muting me. Gotcha. Um, Uh, All right, here. Just start from 2009. Yeah, in January 2009, Rush has... The, he's there on Monday, I think it was, and he forgets to tell the audience I'm going to be out the next day. And he sort of instructs his guest host to play a game with the audience, you know, hinting, you know, Rush is somewhere big, something's going on. And where he is, is he's having lunch with President Bush. Um, and, and this lunch, he, Bush is doing a lot of media. He'll do a meeting the following week with like 10 hosts. But Rush is important, so important that they present him. He's in the president's private dining room with the president and one aide, and they present him with a chocolate birthday cake with a microphone on it. Um, and when he tells the story, he will say, you know, I wish my parents were still here to see this. Uh, he's very emotional. He's invited to the Medal of Freedom ceremony. Well, as he's flying back to Palm Beach, there is sort of the story breaks that, that Barack Obama, the, the pre- soon to be the president in like yeah. a week, is having dinner it's like at George Will's house with like conservative columnists. And the story gets out there, you know, is that what Rush was doing? You know, he wouldn't tell the audience where you know, his guest host wouldn't say where Rush was. You know, is Rush meeting with Barack Obama? And, and it's a huge moment in terms of showing the importance of talk radio and showing the importance of Rush. So, you know, pause to think about this. This is a guy who's a college dropout, been fired uh, four times as a DJ, fired from another job as well. Uh, and then from his first talk radio gig. And here he is in the course of three decades where he's having a private birthday lunch with one president, um, where the president of the United States is singing happy birthday to him. 
And people are wondering, is he meeting with the president-elect of the other party because he's Rush Limbaugh and he's that significant? Yeah. And this is something that um, you know, that story tells you how talk radio is part of the fiber of our politics today. And it tells you how important it is, especially in Republican politics. Let's talk real briefly uh, as we wrap up here about the modern ecosystem for conservative talk media, because certainly talk radio is what it is. A lot of it is waning as all radio is kind of contracting a little bit, but it certainly has not stopped a hunger for political talk. Podcasts obviously are gigantic. Uh, uh, you're on one right now, right? So, yep. uh, uh, yep. uh, so are YouTube videos and, and some of the celebrities, the new rising stars, uh, in, in the new digital landscape, uh, how has that affected not only, you know, the, the world of Rush Limbaugh, but also just conservative talk in general? I think that the best way of understanding it is I think the AM radio stick, what they call a stick, is imperiled. I don't know in 10 years if we're talking that AM radio is going to be in a very good place because as cars have more integration of your phone and other things, you know, people are going to get more and more resistant to listening to the level of commercials that you get on AM station. I think it's 22 minutes an hour. It's like 38 minutes of talk, yeah. like 22 minutes an hour of commercials. Well, that's a lot. You know, a podcast might have one or two at the top, maybe one in the middle, uh, one at the end, but that's it. So I, I think that the AM radio stick is, is in danger, but I don't think there is any danger of this content going away. What I think is going to happen as podcasts and satellite radio and things like that become the, the delivery mechanism for this is we're going to get much more diverse content, which is to say that we're already seeing that. You know, One problem that liberal radio had in trying to get built up, and it's a secondary problem, but it's a problem no less, is by the time all, uh, all liberal stations kind of get tried in the early 2000s, um, and this is this is like air, going, this is like Air America and stuff like that. That's right. I, I try not to say Air America myself for the simple reason that I think it took me 18 pages, not in the book, but in my doctoral dissertation, <laughs> to describe why Air America flopped because there were so many problems that were intrinsic to Air America, like management issues and constantly changing management and things like that. Yeah. So everyone knows Air America, but we don't, I don't want them to think that Air America is why other liberal radio hasn't worked because it's got so many problems that are unique to Air America. Sure. But when they try that kind of thing, what's happening is by this point, thanks to deregulation, um, companies are owning you know six, eight stations in a market, and they start to put Air America on their third or fourth station. Well, when you're number three or four in the pecking order, you're on a weaker signaled station, and you're getting um, you're not getting the top promotional budget because obviously that's going to the top rated station. Well, those top rated stations, those fifty thousand what they call fifty thousand watt flamethrowers, the stations that I as a little kid loved because we could go on vacation down into the Carolinas or even up to Maine. And you could hear the Phillies at night because they 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 were clear channel stations. They were they had huge signals. Yeah. Those stations, there's a finite number of them, and they're locked down by these conservative talk formats. Now, so flash forward to 2019, in the world of podcasts, Pod Save America can be a big deal. Yeah. Um, because there you don't need a radio signal if you're doing a good show. If you're putting on good content, people can just download it and listen. 
And the economics of a podcast, the cost is relatively low to put it on. You know, you can buy a good microphone, hook it up to your computer and, and do it. And so I think you're going to get more ideologically diverse content. Um, and, and that really would have been great democratically, um, small d democratic, not, not the party, but would have been great for the country you know, 20, 30 years ago. Now the risk exists that because there's so much media that people are going to retreat into two very different bubbles. You know, on the left, you're listening to Pod Save America. You might watch Rachel Maddow. You might watch Chris Hayes. You might listen to NPR a little bit. You're you're mixing your media in that world. Um, and then on the right, you're you're listening to fo- put Fox and Friends on when you wake up in the morning. Then you might have your local conservative host on your way to work. Then you listen to Rush. You got Hannity. You got Fox News at night, and, and you're probably reading Breitbart and Red State and things like that. And it's a totally different world. You know, I'm the type of guy, I like to watch a ball game at the gym and listen to music usually. So I got that on, but there are other TVs around the room, and you'll watch, you know, one, sometimes somebody will have Fox News on, somebody will have CNN on, somebody will have MSNBC on, and it is three different worlds. You're like, was that the same day they're describing? You know, they're not even talking about the same things. And, and as people retreat into these echo chambers, it, it's dangerous for us as a society because you don't even have the same set of facts to argue about. Yeah. Uh, and that is certainly something that uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by talk radio because I do believe it is such a direct uh, uh, origin point for like everything that's happening now in podcasting. Like it, it is, it was like when I first started, uh, when I had the, energy to do a one mic podcast, the only place to listen to is either sports or politics. And in that you can count on one hand, the people that are really the models for it and Rush Limbaugh is really at the top. So it is, it is fascinating where it has, it has led, but uh, what was also fascinating was his entire interview. And I would like to thank Brian Rosenwald for joining us again. Your book is talk radios America, and you are, the uh, co-creator and editor of the Made by History blog and a scholar of residence at the University of Pennsylvania. If folks want to uh, follow you on social media, where can they do that? At Brian ROS1 on Twitter. Um, I, I'm prolific at, at tweeting, probably my own detriment sometimes, but <laughs> politics, sports, music, you name it, and, and cute dog pictures. I'm big on retweeting those because we all need a little something good in, in life. And not a bad Philly season so far, right? Harper finally came around, right? I mean, they, they, they break your heart every night, and then you look at the standings, you're like, you're only one game out, you know? So, it, 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 look, I, I, all I've asked for is meaningful September baseball. And if they <laughs> deliver that, then it will be better than the eight seasons that preceded it. So, you know, but I'm always tweeting about them. All right. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Brian. My pleasure. Happy to do it anytime. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>